1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Ancient History. I'm Craig Cervillo, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Edward Watts about his excellent new book, The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Ed, hello, and welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Craig. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a pleasure to have you. Um, Ed, we always like to begin our interviews here on the New Books Network by asking the author to tell us a little bit about themselves.
1: So I'm a <clears throat> I'm a Roman and Byzantine historian. Uh, I'm based in San Diego. Um, before that, I was in Indiana for 10 years. And I uh, kind of got my start on the East Coast, um, where I went to, to college and graduate school um, in the Northeast. Uh, and since I've got to UCSD, I've gotten very, very interested in exploring questions like the nature of Roman history and the role that Greeks play in that Roman history, uh, and how Roman history in particular becomes something that Greeks identify with. So um, this book kind of grew out of that larger concern of considering Roman history across the totality of, you know, the better part of 2000 years where the empire survives and changes and integrates new people. Um, And so this is a kind of project that grew out of my time in San Diego, but uh, also one that I think is particularly exciting as a way to think about change and adaptation.
0: Um, We're definitely going to spend the vast majority of the time discussing your current book, but you've written six books. um, And so just give our listeners sort of a smattering of what other books that you've written, other things that you've been interested in, just for those who may be interested in your other work.
1: Sure. I think what's um, the way maybe I would describe the evolution of these projects is all of them reflect a kind of moment, uh, the moment at which I was writing them. So my first book was a, a history of academic life in the cities of Athens and Alexandria in the later Roman Empire. Um, and this kind of grew out of the fact that I was at that point a graduate student and I was studying in you know institutions of higher learning and was very interested in the, the past representations of this Uh, The second book was a study of a a micro history of a riot that broke out in the city of Alexandria in 486 AD. Uh, And that grew out of the fact that I was now uh, at Indiana and surrounded by people doing really wonderful work with oral traditions. And I was wondering what we could do as an ancient historian to take some of that work and apply it to antiquity. Uh, The third book grew out of my realization that I had entered middle age. It was a Uh, Gen Xer, um, and belonged to a generation that probably was not going to make the kind of noise that the baby boomers before us and uh, the millennials after us were going to make. And so the third book was a history of the final pagan generation, which is a generation born in the three tens, um, who saw kind of their expectations of the world completely outstripped by the rise of Christianity. Uh, My fourth book was a, a study of the female philosopher Hypatia. Uh, and that grew out of um, some of the experiences that you know my mother had as a female scientist. And um, my daughter is likely to have because she also wants to pursue science. Uh, and then my most recent book before D- Decline and Fall was Mortal Republic, um, which is a study of the end of the Roman Republic uh, and how the successful and functional Roman Republic degenerated into the tyranny of Augustus. Uh, and obviously that was influenced deeply by the political realities that we're living through right now.
0: Yeah, no, no, thank you for that. Um, I, I think it's great always to hear the sort of all the <laughs> long careers. It's it's fascinating to hear what you've worked on over the years. Uh, and I think it will help orient people when we talk about your book as well. So let's talk specifically about the origin story of, of this book. Um, and, and it will be wrapped up in, I know my next question about current events Influencing the writing of this book?
1: Uh, So there were a couple of things that influenced this. The the first one is a bigger kind of shift I'm seeing in the way that my students in particular have been approaching ancient history. And when I started teaching about 20 years ago, the students were particularly interested in questions of the decline of the Roman Empire as it related to things like the American Empire um, and the war in Iraq and uh structures of sort of world power. Um, but around 2012, 2014, I noticed that my students became a lot more interested in the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, and the empire became something that was, you know, interesting, but not seemingly particularly relevant to their experiences. Um, and that kind of crystallized a couple of things for me. The, the first thing was When we think about Rome in a modern context, we're almost always talking about its fall and its decline and trying to draw lessons from it that relate somehow to a modern experience. But then second of all, the students in particular were responding to a particular sort of rhetoric that had begun to become quite common in the United States, which was a rhetoric that used Rome as a way to conceptualize the consequences of changes that we were undergoing in our society. Um, And so I began looking at where this comes from um, and how deeply we can find this when we start digging in Roman history. And what I realized is we're not we didn't invent this story. Um, This was a story that was there throughout all of Roman history, you know, from the very beginning of Roman history. Uh, And what really sort of propelled me to do this project now was a conversation um, with my editor at Oxford. I'm Stefan Vranca. Where we were talking about the use of this rhetoric, in particular, in alt-right contexts, and what does that have to do with a deeper historical understanding of Rome, and and the way that other people who are not in that that uh, group, that segment, that that community, um, also think about Rome, and so the book grew out of. Uh, desire to look at the stories of Roman decline and the promises of Roman renewal that often accompany them throughout history, you know, from where they first show up in our literature to now, when they're being used in ways that, to some degree, resemble what Romans were doing in the past.
0: Um, do you find that this, these kinds of the use of this history is... Confined to one side of the political aisle, or is it different in other places? Not, you know, I'm thinking mostly in the United States, um, but elsewhere, do liberals use this history as as well as sort of alt right?
1: Yeah, for sure. No, and and I think that um, what we see across, you know, again, the book covers 2,200 years, and what we see across that 2,200 years is this is a rhetoric that people in on all sides of the political spectrum use. Um, in a modern context, you know, the, the rhetoric of Roman decline was used quite powerfully by, by liberals and people on the left against uh, ideas of interventionism in you know, external wars uh, in the early part of this century, you know, and then the lead up to the Iraq war in particular. And so I think that there are moments and contexts in which a particular Roman story might be more useful than in other contexts. But what Roman history shows is, you know, people from um, radical progressive and populist reformers to very conservative reactionaries uh, have used the story of Roman decline and the promise of Roman renewal repeatedly. Uh, and so there are ways that, you know, particular parts of the Roman story resonate more with the right than the left or vice versa, but both uh, sides of the political spectrum are using this story. Um, they're just not using, you know, the same moments or the same interpretations.
0: Um, is, I don't know if you, you have the answer to this right on the top of your head, but do, do you know the first sort of person to really use this story?
1: Uh, so when I started this study, what I realized was um, the one of the first authors that we have intact texts in Latin from is the playwright Plautus. Um, you know, and, he, and he's actually the earliest author that we have a big corpus of material from. Plautus is already making fun of this idea in some of the very first surviving Roman literature. Um, and so Plautus is basically taking, you know, poking fun at people who are using the idea of Roman decline to criticize others and try to disrupt changes in their society, which suggests that that idea is not new then. Right? I mean, you don't make fun of something, unless people already know it's happening. And they kind of share your belief that this is uh, the kind of complaint of a curmudgeon rather than an actual issue that needs to be urgently addressed. So part of the fun in starting with Plautus is you're you're able to parachute into the very beginning of a literary tradition, but this thought tradition is already very old. Um, and so I think that we can pretty easily assume that this way of talking about change in Rome is very, very old. I mean, it long predates when Plautus starts mocking it. Um, and so I think that we can see this as, uh, in a way, a, a deep pretty strong and persistent feature of what Roman culture is all about. Um, and it goes back probably as far as we can trace Roman culture.
0: Hmm. So before we get too far into the specifics of the book itself, I'm wondering if you could spend a few minutes sort of explaining to our listeners, first of all, what what the general narrative of decline and renewal is. Um, we'll, we'll start there and then I'll ask a follow up.
1: Okay. yeah, I think in a Roman context, the basic idea that is um, in place for most of Roman history, not all, but most of Roman history, is that there were aspects of Roman life in the past that were better than the present and any challenges that we face in the present are the result of us breaking with these behaviors in the past that made Rome successful. And those behaviors and that reference to the past is very fluid. The idealized past that you're looking towards and the sorts of things that you want to return to changes over time. Um, But that idea of looking at the past as a way to respond to changes that are making people uncomfortable in the present is a kind of persistent part of the way that Romans define Uh, Change in their world. But the other part of this narrative that's very important is a lot of the time when people are talking about decline, they are doing this to create a sense of urgency uh, that, on the one hand, validates people's sense that society is changing in ways they're uncomfortable with, but also um, gives the person making the claim that Rome is in decline the opportunity to propose some sort of radical and necessary shift in behaviors that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Um, It in a sense creates a moment of emergency where what you need to do to fix Rome um, is so radical that you otherwise wouldn't agree to do it. And so politicians recognize that this is a weapon to break with social restraints or break with legal protections um, and to do things to other people that they blame for causing this decline that otherwise would be completely unacceptable in Roman society. Uh, And this, too, is something we see begin the very beginning, you know, that when Plautus is making fun of this, we know that there are politicians who are using the comments about Rome being in decline to expropriate people's property um, and eventually even to run kind of campaigns that are xenophobic actions against immigrants and um, expulsions of particular immigrants from the city of Rome. Um, And these are things that legally would not be possible without this story of Rome being in a a, a very urgent um, emergency that requires them to respond aggressively in an unprecedented way to a threat that seems like it will undermine the Roman way of life. Uh, And the narrative of decline is what creates the conditions that allow you to make that claim and to take these otherwise unacceptable actions against other people.
0: And then, and so now how is the idea of renewal connected to that?
1: So the renewal is the other side of decline. It's the promise that if you do these things that you otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable doing, you can bring Rome back to where it ought to be. Uh, And so all of these narratives of decline that are undertaken or that are invented or that are um, thrown out there for politically opportunistic reasons um, have on the other side of them a promise that if you do these things that you otherwise would be uncomfortable doing, things will get better. You know, we will bring Rome back to what it was before. Uh, we will restore the conditions that made our society successful. Um, but we have to do something radical uh, to restore those conditions. And so, renewal is always part of that story because it has to be. If you're opportunistically telling a story, um, and you're encouraging people to do things that they would otherwise be uncomfortable doing, you have to promise them something in return. And so renewal is always the kind of flip side of that coin. You know, And in, in the Republic, uh, people would say, if you elect me, I will fix this for you. You know, if you elect me, I am addressing the decline that you're concerned about, and I will do this thing to bring about a renewal. Um, in the empire, it becomes a little bit different because you have emperors come in saying, I had to replace the guy who came before me, right? Usually by assassinating him or participating in some kind of a coup. Um, And that coup that took somebody's life is necessary because conditions are so bad and only I can fix them. And so this person that I killed had to be killed so that we could create the conditions where I can fix things in Roman society. And again, that renewal is the flip side of the decline story. And the decline story, in a sense, is the the tool um, that provides the mechanism where someone coming to power um, can do those things to, you know, claim that they are renewing or restoring Roman society.
0: Would you say that the use of these stories was more common in the empire period than the republic Republican period, or no? Uh,
1: so I think that the interesting thing about it is, in the republic, this is a very useful tool. Um, to get elected. I mean, we see this in the United States, we see this in a lot of other countries too, where uh, you can very easily run against the status quo in an election by saying, you know, what these policies that I disagree with are causing these really deep-seated persistent problems that will undo our society. And in Rome, uh, offices are only held for a year. And so this narrative is always there in the Republic, because there's always someone trying to run against the establishment as an anti-establishment candidate who's claiming the establishment is causing deep-seated crises in Rome that only they can bring back. In the empire, it becomes a little bit different because power turns over a lot less frequently. And so with uh, the republic, this is always a discussion of decline now and renewal coming in the future. In the empire, when you get these discussions of decline, um, it usually comes in an imperial transition. And at that moment of transition, What they are saying in essence is the prior moment was a moment of decline, now starts the renewal, right? The guy before me um, was terrible and caused these problems in Roman society, but now he's gone and so the renewal has already started. So in a sense, the decline narrative in the Republic is one that is used to describe the present and the renewal narrative is a promise of a future that's contingent on somebody being elected. Uh, in the empire, the decline narrative is in the past, uh, and the present is the time of renewal, and the future is a sort of consi- uh, a uh, continuation of the present. But it reflects, in a way, um, the different natures of those power structures. Where in the republic, power shifts in power are dynamic and regular. Um, in the empire, they are infrequent, but when they occur. The narrative really is trotted out very aggressively because it has to justify something um, that is really disruptive. You know, the murder of an emperor is a really disruptive political act, um, and so you really need to justify that, and you have to immediately begin work on fixing the problem that you identify as you know the reason an emperor needed to be killed.
0: Um, before we start talking about uh, the the very. Popular and present question of, of Rome, fall of Rome, in comparison with the United States and and our possible decline. I, I want to move to some chapter specific uh, questions. That way, we can give the listeners some sort of context and also some examples of your idea of this idea that you're talking about, sort of in action. Um, so. Uh, I'll try to keep it some uh, chronological. Let, let, let's begin with the, the sort of the golden age of Trajan. Um, okay. And explain to us sort of how this idea works with you know with Trajan and under Trajan's reign.
1: Yeah. So the the age of Trajan is a really really fascinating time for Roman historians um, because what you have there is some of the best authors in all of Roman history writing texts that promote this narrative of restoration. Um, that begins under Trajan's predecessor, the Emperor Nerva, but it is framed as a reaction to the tyranny and, and decline of the Emperor Domitian. Um, but when one looks objectively at the career of the Emperor Domitian, not only is it not a time of decline, um, it's also, you know, objectively far better than the reign of Nerva. Uh, but even more interestingly, these authors who are writing under Trajan and talking about the reign of Domitian as a terrible time all were beneficiaries of the reign of Domitian. Um, And they all worked closely with Domitian. And interestingly, so did Trajan. Um, Trajan was a loyal general who helped Domitian put down a rebellion and was given as a reward uh, the consulship, which was the the highest office that a non-emperor could occupy, the most uh, honorific thing you could get. And so the, the reign of Trajan is framed by everyone as a kind of golden age of consensus between the Senate and the emperor that undid all of the damage to that relationship that the supposed tyranny of Domitian had done. Um, But in some ways, we can look at this and see that uh, the people that we turn to for that story are in a way overcompensating because they were so closely allied with the emperor Domitian, who is discredited because he was assassinated. And so the narrative of decline not only in a way poisons our ability to understand the reign of Domitian, but it also, in a way, um, gives us an even better than uh, deserved impression of the reign of Trajan. Because in a way, we have a narrative that demonizes Domitian um, and glorifies Trajan. But because you have this imperial transition that uh, ended Domitian abruptly and started this new dynasty that Trajan belongs to, the, uh, the story in a sense is, is amped up to a degree that we don't always appreciate when we don't understand that context. Um, and so the story of decline and the promise of renewal is something that's integral to getting what's going on in the 90s um, with the reign of Domitian, but also integral to understanding why Trajan is celebrated to the degree that he actually is.
0: Hmm. Um, so let's. My next question is about um, Christianity. Um, obviously, the history of Christianity in Rome is 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 long and complicated, uh, and I don't expect you to explain it to us all here. Um, but I I am curious, and and you talk a lot about Christianity in your book. Obviously, when you're transitioning from paganism to Christianity these, these stories of decline and renewal are are going to be prominent factors, right? Because, you know, you have pagans who are seeing these new, this new religion being disruptive. um, And then eventually Christianity will triumph in Rome um, with Constantine. And so that creates a whole new use for, for these narratives. So um, can you in some way sort of explain to us um, sort of Christianity and how it's connected to your overall ideas in this book?
1: Yeah, this is a really, really good question um, because we talked earlier about how most of Roman history is dominated by this idea that, you know, some time in the past was better than the present, right? There's some aspect of the past that we've lost and that's why we have problems in the present. Um, The one moment where that's not true is really the fourth century into the early fifth century. Uh, And this is a moment where um, Christians after Constantine's conversion have uh, a unexpected um, dominance in the empire, right? They did not ever anticipate that they would have a Christian emperor uh, who is empowered to remake Roman society along Christian lines. And so, starting in the middle part of the fourth century. Christians begin to imagine that Roman society could be better than it has ever been before. Uh, And they start floating this idea that there is a kind of Christian Roman progress where the progression of the church is so deeply integrated in the progression of Roman society, that now that you have a Christian Roman emperor and a church that's um, working in lockstep with imperial policy, you can create something better than has ever existed before. You know, you can create a Roman empire in which the presence of Christianity is you know, creating conditions that are um, far better than anything Rome has ever seen. And so much of the fourth century, Christians are telling a story about Rome improving, Rome understanding things better, Rome becoming a better society that will be more functional, more stable, and more successful because it has embraced Christianity. Um, But you're also right that on the other side of this are pagans who get increasingly concerned that the embrace of Christianity is undoing a lot of the things that historically had made Rome successful. And one of the most famous um, conflicts between these two ideas occurs in 384 when the pagan Senator Symmachus and the Christian Bishop Ambrose have an exchange where these two competing ideas about what Rome is and how Rome succeeds kind of come head to head. And Symmachus says, um, you know, we are moving away from the traditional rights that have for hundreds of years made Rome successful, the rights that made us uh, dominate the empire or dominated the Mediterranean and the rights that gave us our empire. And when we turn away from these things, we are going to have problems. We're going to have tangible problems. Uh, and he points to some examples with, um, Rome's inability to really defend itself against barbarians and Rome's inability to feed itself because of, um, issues with the weather and with, uh, with famines. And Ambrose comes back and says, well, no, I mean, we are, these are not real problems. Because Rome is getting better. Christian progress is real. And Christianity is making Rome a better society. And in the 380s, both of those arguments have people who feel very strongly about them. Um, When you get into the 5th century, though, and particularly when the city of Rome is sacked in in, uh, 410, these ideas really come to blows. And pagans say, in essence, see, we told you so your Christian progress is actually something that's going to lead to the degeneration and the collapse of the Roman state. This is not progress. This is decline. And Christians for a time really struggle to figure out how they can respond to that uh, because they don't have a good answer. You know, the things that people in the three eighties said were going to happen when Roman blaze embraced Christianity actually look like they're happening in the four tens. And Christian's, don't feel like they have an effective sp- response um, and they don't feel like the narrative of progress is one um, that will work in the way that it was framed in the fourth century. And so fifth century Christians come up with a new way to describe this. Uh, but, you know, but Christianity's story after the fourth century becomes one that is deeply tied to the fortunes of the Roman empire. And in the Eastern empire, it's even more deeply tied because that empire is a Christian Roman Empire for eleven hundred years.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely want to turn to Justinian and the and the Eastern Empire in a second, but I, I am curious about um something you said in your in your previous answer. What what exactly was the narrative that they the Christians used used in, in the face of the fact that things really weren't going very well in the West, right? Like Rome had as you would said in four ten Rome had been sacked. Like what, what what did they say? What was what, what what their what did their talking points become?
1: Yeah, you get some of the best literature you know in, in the history of the Mediterranean that comes out of that. Um, Augustine's City of God comes out of that, um, and so Augustine is actually a great person to turn to for this because in the aftermath of the sack of Rome in four ten, we actually have um, letters and speeches and things where Augustine says to Christians you know what, if pagans bring this up, like, I don't have a response for you. Just walk away. Like, there really isn't a good response. Um, But the city of God becomes that response. And what Augustine effectively says in the city of God is, well, you know, the real goal for Christians is not to make a better Christian Roman empire. It's to make a better Christian community. Um, And the city of God is actually, I mean, it is an accurate translation of the title, but it doesn't capture the full nuance of the title. I mean, what it really means is something along the lines of the polity of God, right? You know, if you are a citizen of the polity of God, you are a citizen of what Augustine would call the civitas the of God. And the city of God says, in essence, our goal is not to create the best possible Christian Roman empire. It's to create the best possible Christian polity. And that means that your functioning as a Christian and your success as a Christian is more important than your service to Rome. And so Augustine's way around this question of what do we do in response to these pagan criticisms that Christian progress has resulted in Roman decline? Well, we say the empire is great if it makes us better Christians, but if the choice is being a better Christian or being a better Roman, we should choose being a better Christian because that community is more important. Um, And so in the fifth century, this becomes the Christian response. You know, as the Roman Empire in the West loses control of territory in what's now Spain and in what's now France, and eventually even in, um, you know, in North Africa, the response more and more is to say, Rome was great, but what's really important to me is my functioning as a Christian. And if... I, as a person born in the Roman Empire with lots of resources and lots of property and lots of um, opportunities for advancement, lose all of those rights and all of that property and all of those opportunities for advancement, but I become a better Christian, that is a good trade. And you have authors in the fifth century writing these kinds of texts. Um, Paulinus of Pella is perhaps the, the best example of this, where he adapts the narrative of Job to his own conditions um, as someone who was born a Roman nobleman um, with vast properties, lots of money, um, vineyards in in, um, Burgundy. And he ends up living in an apartment in Marseille and saying that all of the things that he lost were actually for the good because it made him a better Christian and it made him understand God better. And so this in a way is a, a fifth century christian response to what uh romans would say is a political crisis you know a political kind of degeneration that is undeniable um but christians now have a way to answer the pagan critique that this is not you know that this is not actually what we should be concerned about political decline military decline is not what christians really should focus on we should instead focus on our success as christians not as romans
0: yeah, no, it's fascinating, and so <laughs> thank you for going into such uh, detail with that answer because I, I I was struck by this, um, you know, how do you respond to the obvious, right? <laughs> um, as the capital <laughs> is being, you know, s- sacked, um, now is a probably a good time to switch to the east and, and look at Justinian, um, Justinian's reign, because I mean, as bad as things are are in the in the West, um, things under Justinian from what i you know from the history that i understand you know this is a this is a, a period of tremendous prosperity for the empire in the east and you know it, it's not until justinian's sort of desire to rebuild the entirety of the roman empire by conquering the west that you know sort of messes up any progress that they made but i mean the idea of of roman renewal must be sort of central to what Justinian is doing.
1: It's a huge huge part of it And I think the thing with Justinian that's important to understand is um, the West suffers all of these problems you know it, in a way the narrative Augustine creates and the story Paulinus of Pella create reflects the, the real consequences of deep and dramatic uh, negative change in the material and political aspects of life in the West. The East doesn't suffer any of that. Um, And so in the East, this story of Christian Roman progress remains alive. And it's under Justinian that you have an emperor who who leans completely into this. And Justinian has this radical proposition of saying that Rome has traditionally been a society that looks backwards and values the inherited practices, laws, institutions um, that go back in some cases for a thousand years at the time of Justinian. And Justinian says, why? Why are we doing this, right? If we really are moving towards a better, more Christian, more successful Roman present and future, these other things that are old can be done away with. And so Justinian takes a really radical position where he embraces the idea that he is the Christian Roman sovereign of a rising Roman polity that can become... Um, and can reach the the uh, fullest of its potential by fully embracing this idea of being a Christian Roman state. And Justinian is is unique among Roman emperors in doing things like saying, uh, "I am going to put together all of Roman law under the inspiration of of God, and anything that's not in here is invalidated, right? The entire Roman legal tradition that's supposed to be an evolving tradition." continually building on past precedents, but never discarding any of them. Um, This is a tradition that to Justinian needs a complete restart. And so everything that Justinian doesn't value is gone. It's not law anymore. He is the only Roman emperor to take such a radical step. Um, But some of the other things that he does is says, he says, in essence, now that we've kind of achieved this wonderful Christian Roman present, it's time to look to the West and we take what we've lost as Romans. You know, these these entities in the West that had been Roman, but now are living under barbarian rulers, they need to become Roman again. Uh, and so the Roman restoration that Justinian promises is connected in some ways to that promise also of the, a, a superior Roman presence. But the narrative of decline and the story of renewal is in a way Justinian's um, attempts to kind of validate his vision of a Roman state that uh, is the realization of everything that a Christian Roman state could be. And that requires him to launch wars in the West uh, that are incredibly destructive and in some ways not necessary. Um, It also, not coincidentally, uh, leads to Justinian and some of his propagandists inventing the idea that the West fell in 476 AD. Um, This is an idea that before Justinian began thinking about invading and reconquering the West, um, no one had even heard of. Uh, No one would even recognize the idea that Rome fell in 476 as a historical possibility. Um, It's only with Justinian and his ambitions to go and retake the West that this story starts to emerge. Uh, And so with Justinian, you, you again have this story of decline justifying something that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Uh, it gives Justinian grounds to invade what's now North Africa and what's now Italy, um, basically on grounds that no one would have recognized as legitimate until he created this story of the decline and fall of the Western Empire.
0: Um, I have two questions I want to ask as follow-ups. Uh, one is, uh, why the date? Why the specific date? Why, why 476? Like, What, what specific event? Would, he, would they point to that makes that date so concrete? Because, I mean, even when you're now, when you're in elementary and middle school, they all the textbooks say that Rome fell in 476. So it, yeah. it's persuasive and powerful, obviously, to this day. Um, but, but why the date?
1: So that, that connects to a moment when the um, commander, a Roman commander named Odoacar, overthrows a child emperor named Romulus Augustulus. Uh, and the the famous text that we have says that, you know, with this Augustulus ends the Roman Empire of the West. Um, the reality is much more complicated. And the first, the first part of that is that um, Romulus Augustulus, in the eyes of Constantinople, is a usurper. I mean, he's not a legitimate emperor at all. The legitimate emperor that he deposed is still actually reigning over territory that belonged to the Eastern Empire that's now in Croatia. So there still is a Western emperor. And when Odoacer sends the Imperial regalia to Constantinople and says hey there's no there's no Western Empire anymore the response from Constantinople is well no there is because there's still an emperor named ne- Julius Nepos who's still alive and still reigning and the person you deposed was never a legitimate emperor at all um, but the other part of that is eventually after Nepos dies there is a, a arrangement set about where Odoacer and then later um, the Gothic King Theodoric, are reigning as basically Roman sovereigns of a sort, uh, and so the aspects of the functioning of society under Odoacer and Theodoric remain Roman. The Senate still meets. Roman consuls are still named. Roman law still governs things. Um, officially, they are serving as kind of agents of the emperor in the East in Constantinople, uh, but the stuff that's being written in their courts make it clear that everybody working there still thinks that this is the Western Roman state. Um, And the political implications of having a barbarian who is effectively running this are, of course, complicated. Uh, But no one in Italy is imagining that the Western Roman state ended in 476. But for Justinian, who wants to attack the successors of Theodoric's Gothic um, regime, you know, other Gothic kings in Italy, he needs to be able to justify that as an illegitimate regime. Uh, and so what he says is Odoacar is a goth, a Gothic king who deposed the legitimate Roman emperor. And with that, you have Italy become a Gothic kingdom and not a Roman state at all. Um, the reality is Odoacar is not Gothic. And that wasn't the reality in the 470s. And so there's some pretty transparently, um there's pretty transparent deception in this story that creates the narrative of 476, and it's pretty clear why it's there, right? It's, it's used as a casus belli to um, justify a war to overthrow Gothic control of Italy. Um, but the problem that we have as historians is Theodoric and Odoacar do not destroy Italy. In fact, they actually improve quite a bit the material well-being of Italy. But Justinian's invasion does destroy significant parts of the urban fabric of Italy, um, you know, including things like the complete destruction of the city of Milan, um, a dramatic co- contraction of the population of the city of Rome. Um, and so by the time Justinian has reconquered Italy, it definitely looks like it's fallen. <laughs> it's a mess. Um, and so you have this story of the fall of the West that doesn't actually correspond to reality, but then you also have a fall in Italy And so it makes sense in retrospect to kind of combine those two things. You know, why does Italy go from a very, very powerful center of of military and cultural um, resources in the early part of the sixth century to a place that's kind of hollowed out by the middle of the sixth century? Well, you have a story and it's not the right story. It's not that Justinian's invasion destroyed this, um, but it is a story that you can then use for subsequent centuries to explain a reality that looks very strange to people who look at the position of Italy for the previous 1,000 years.
0: Yeah, and it's very compelling and very neat and very easy to understand and communicate that story um, so that the staying power is, is obvious. Um, the second question before we move on to something else was, Justinian clearly leaned into the renewal aspect of this really, really hard too. You know, I'm thinking, when I was reading your book, I was thinking about his building projects. And you know, yeah. the building of the Hagia Sophia, like this, this giant monument to his, to his power. And um, so would you, would you say that, you know, he's pretty purposeful, like he knows what he's doing with these building projects and, uh, and this, he, he, know, he's really taking this narrative to heart and using it. Like it's not just oh, by abs- accident.
1: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what he does with Hagia Sophia is, it's horrific, but, but, you know, um, it's a wonderful building. It's one of the most amazing things Romans ever created. But it's built um, on space that had been a previous church that was destroyed in an urban riot. Um, and Justinian ended the urban riot with a massacre that killed, you know tens of thousands of people. Uh, and what Justinian does is he has um, a basically a writer of hymns create a a story. Uh, that, you know, doesn't talk about Justinian massacring these people. It just sort of says, oh, well, the center of the city was, you know, damaged by our um, infidelity to God. And this church is Justinian and his wife Theodora's response to that. You know, it is our gift in the way that sort of Solomon gave a temple. Um, It is our gift to God to represent our returning to the faith of God uh and this is something that is sung in Hagia Sophia in mass where the congregation is invited to kind of speak as Justinian giving this church to God um and it is a whole story of you know the destruction of the center of Constantinople because of the lack of faith of Romans and now this monument that represents the return of Romans to the correct um, worship of God and the true faithfulness that God demands. Um, And the real story, of course, is Justinian put this riot down by killing, you know, 20,000 people, perhaps. Um, But the story of renewal that comes out in that hymn celebrating the, the dedication of Hagia Sophia and a bunch of other texts that also dedicate Hagia Sophia, they focus on the restoration of the urban fabric of Constantinople after the riot. But they don't actually talk about Justinian's role in that riot. Uh, They kind of make it a decline that happened without attributing the decline and the destruction to anyone in particular, um, aside from, you know, rowdy crowds. And then they give Justinian credit for fixing it. When, of course, the real story is Justinian is um, largely responsible for causing the destruction that he takes credit for repairing. Uh,
0: Yeah, so no, I, Justinian and Theodora are fascinating part of this story. Um, let's move to sort of the end chapters of your book now with the with the capture of Constantinople, um, which is largely seen. You know, this is you know in, in basic history, we're taught that you know this is the end of the Roman of the Roman Empire, the Roman experiment, um, and, and this will lead me into my my next question. But so. Let's talk about maybe just this—not the, the, the full collapse of the Eastern Empire, but, but basically the end. Um, you know, they're, they're surrounded, Constantinople surrounded, um, and you know it eventually falls. So, how does your idea play in to the very end of the Roman Empire?
1: This is, I think, one of the, the things as I was working in the book that I, I found most um, kind of interesting and surprising. Um, the story of Roman decline is there all the time, but up till 1453, so is the story of Roman renewal. Um, and so Romans become very, very comfortable talking about, well, here we are in decline, but they also expect as Romans that that decline is going to be addressed and and they're going to come back from it, right? There's going to be some kind of restoration. And by 1453, the empire is down really to the city of Constantinople and some scattered territories along um, you know, the basically southern Greece and along uh, part of the Black Sea coast. It's a very small state. It is very exposed and it's surrounded on all sides, Constantinople surrounded on all sides by the Ottomans. Um, it does not have the capacity really to defend itself. Uh, and so it gets some help from the West and they are able to hold off the Ottoman assault for a little while. But the interesting thing about the power of this story of Roman decline and renewal is a lot of people in the city of Constantinople expected that even if the Turks breached the walls, there was going to be a a kind of angel or angelic figure or a kind of um, figure from, you know, inspired and empowered by God who would show up when they reached the Forum of Constantine in the middle of the city. Uh, And when the Turks reached that, there was a story told that this angelic figure would come down and... Lead the Romans to victory and then restore the entirety of the Eastern Empire all the way back to its seventh century frontier along the Euphrates and all the way down to Egypt. Um, That's a story that, of course, is not a rational story, but it is a story that, as you know, a Roman who, who spent his entire life or her entire life surrounded by stories of decline and renewal, it's reasonable in some ways to expect that you would have a renewal. Um, and part of what inspired that is when the city of Constantinople was sacked and, and captured by the Crusaders in 1204, there actually was a restoration. Uh, there were exiles who left Constantinople, um, and they set up basically resistance movements to the Crusaders that ultimately, in 12 in 1261, recaptured the city of Constantinople and restored the empire. Uh, and so this story that seems so ridiculous to us. Um, you know, that the city could be captured by the Turks, the empire could be almost extinguished by the Turks, and somehow it would come back. Um, When you have 1500 years or more of stories of Rome doing just that, on one level, you can understand why people would have this idea. Uh, And a number of the historians who write about the the fall of Constantinople expect some sort of a almost miraculous recovery. Um, Even more rational supposedly rational historians like uh, the historian Dukas talks about how he had heard a prophecy that um, they would come back, you know, they would be conquered by the Ottomans, but they would come back because this was just divine punishment for their sins and the sinfulness of the last Roman dynasty, the Peleologans. Dukas should have known better. He probably, on one level, by the end of his history, I think he does know better. But this idea of Roman recovery is something that's so deeply ingrained in the Roman sensibility and the Roman way of talking about the collective experience of the empire and its citizens uh, that it's almost impossible to shake even when the reality is so obviously not going to go in that direction.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah, I, I, the thought that even, even as the, the walls would, were not just closing and caving in, <laughs> um, they they were holding on to this, this idea. Um, this leads me to, I think, a question that anybody who's studied any Roman history has thought about or read about um, is the often used comparison between the United States and the Roman empire. And is it, is it a legitimate comparison? Is it, is it anything more than an interesting kind of maybe thought experiment um, or or what? What is your feeling on this?
1: Yeah, I think that um, I think that Rome has, I mean, it's such a long and well-documented history that it's possible to look at it uh, and imagine implications for just about any event. The key and the challenging thing for Roman historians is to figure out where those similarities are real and instructive and where they are just kind of echoes. Um, and I think that there are things you can look at and say, well, you know, this structure of, say, our republic is something that was explicitly modeled on that of the Roman Republic. Uh, there are significant differences in the way that that we allocate power, the terms of office, uh, but the basic ideas of our republic and the Roman republic are consistent. And the founders of our republic actually did know pretty deeply how the Romans structured their. Effectively structured their constitution, uh, what principles underlay them, and um, what kinds of things you could learn from the Roman structures that could be useful here. Uh, And they also, even in some ways, uh, used Roman figures from the Republic as points of reference to understand the conduct of people in the early American Republic. So I think that there are ways to understand some of the challenges that a Republic structured in the way ours is. Uh, might be facing by looking at Rome, because in some ways we're an institutional, uh, maybe grandchild of the Roman Republic. I mean, there are similarities that are so strong that they're worth looking at because they are elements of the basic structure of our Republic. Um, I think that the other thing that's interesting is sometimes you do see that there are persistent ways of talking about change. And that I think is where the narrative of decline is very useful for us. We are not going to see a narrative that that is exactly like something that someone in Rome said. But the reason someone is saying it and the sorts of things they're trying to accomplish by making these claims um, will be better understood by us if we look to Rome, because we do have Roman figures that share similar motivations to the people in our world. Um, You know, they are ambitious Um, They think that this rhetoric deployed in a particular way can further their ambitions. And they're trying to use the rhetoric in a similar way that uh, people in the United States are using it. That's useful for us. Not because we'll see something that's exactly the same, but because we will know that seeing someone claim decline and promise that they alone can fix it and do it in a way that, that makes us uncomfortable is dangerous. Uh, Not because they're saying exactly the same thing a Roman did, um, but because their goal in saying this is similar to the goal that a Roman had. And we have so many examples in Rome of what happens when you don't take these people seriously. You know, when you don't actually understand that it's ambition and not altruism that's driving these kinds of comments. Um, And so I think that there are definitely things from Roman history that we can use as more than a thought experiment. maybe as a kind of identification tool where there are functions and structures and, um, and behaviors in our society that we ought to be concerned about, we ought to look more closely at. Um, and I think Rome gives us reasons to do that, you know, to look more closely at the motivation of somebody um, or to look more closely at the implications of a particular way of responding to change. Um, also, I think Rome gives us a particularly good way to check the people who use Rome as a rhetorical device to justify their claims that modern society is in decline. Um, and one of the last things that, that I do in the book is look at some of those claims um, from the 20th and 21st centuries, where people are making, using Rome explicitly as a way to say this thing in the United States or this thing in Spain or this thing in the Philippines that you're concerned about, you're right to be concerned about it. You might not be able to articulate why, but if you look at Rome, Rome gives you an example of what happens when issues like this are not addressed. Um, and so Rome is part of that conversation that modern politicians, thinkers, columnists um, are all using to try to make a justification. For really radical changes in the way that our society is functioning. And so that's another, maybe a third way that I think Rome is very important for us now. Um, not just as a thought experiment, but as something that allows us a deeper understanding of what's going on in our society.
0: Yeah, that's that that's an excellent breakdown of that question. There's, you know, there's been so much written, there's been books written about this question. <laughs> Lots of people have, have put in there. Uh, there are two cents on that. So um, thank you for being so thorough and explaining it to us. Um, I always like to close discussion of, of, of these books by asking the author, what are one or two things you would like uh, the people listening today um, and the people who pick up your book and read it to sort of keep with them? Like just signif- things that you find very significant that you, you just hope will, will, will kind of live on in um, readers and listeners well after the podcast is done, whether the, when they're done reading the book?
1: I think the one thing that I would say is really important to take away from this study. And the thing that I was, that I took away from this, this work um, is that decline is real, right? I mean, Rome is not here anymore. It's gone. So it did decline and it did fall. Um, but what we see when we look at the way Romans talk about and respond to decline is a a very interesting sort of threefold response. I mean, in in one case, you have people like Cato the Elder uh, in the early part of the second century BC who are kind of inventing a decline. I mean, there's no objective thing going on in the second century BC that should justify the kind of things that Cato is saying and the kinds of things Cato is doing to other people. I um, mean, that's the kind of decline narrative that I think is most dangerous because it invents something that really isn't there and uses it as a tool to capitalize on people's discomfort, to do things to other people that are completely unnecessary and completely unjustifiable. Um, but there's two other ways that decline is used. I mean, and these are cases where decline is real, you know, something is actually happening and it is bad and society is getting worse. Um, and one example that you can use for this is the, the plague uh, that Rome suffers under Marcus Aurelius. This is probably smallpox. It's a plague that leads to probably at least 10% of the population dying. Uh, there's massive disruptions in everything from you know, the military to um, urban life to the basic structures of government. And what Marcus Aurelius does is he acknowledges that this is a moment of decline, but he also says there's a way forward that brings us together as a society. And Marcus goes and identifies people who have capacities to help Rome recover from this problem. And he then gives them tasks that are consistent with their ability to succeed. And so what he does is he creates a story of Rome coming together and collaboratively addressing the problems that that surround it, the very real, very significant problems that surround it. And people respond by talking about this as a golden age. And it's not a golden age because conditions are good. I mean, far from it. Conditions are terrible. But it's a golden age because despite those terrible conditions, the social structure is getting stronger. Um, And so Marcus's response shows us that there is a way to respond to decline that makes society better. Makes it stronger, it makes it more resilient, it makes people feel good about being part of that society. Um, But there is a flip side, and the flip side is when there is real decline and people respond not like Marcus did by having everyone come together, but instead by saying, Yeah, there's a real problem and it's your fault. Um, And so instead of addressing the problem like Marcus did, they instead ignore the problem and center on other Romans who they want to settle a score with and that doesn't do anything to address the actual tangible causes of Roman decline. And it actually makes the society less robust and more susceptible to even more crises. Um, A great example of that is in the early fifth century when um, preceding the sack of Rome, Roman emperors make a decision to fight a civil war instead of confronting directly barbarian threats. Uh, It's a very short sighted decision, but it is something that responds to very real conditions of crisis, but it's the wrong response. Instead of coming together to address the the actual causes of the crisis, you instead ignore the real crisis and focus instead on fighting each other. Um, And that I think is the worst sort of decline because there are real problems that need to be addressed. there is a real way to address those problems if you were to follow, say, the example of someone like Marcus Aurelius, but instead you choose the approach of Cato. Um, and Cato can do these things without really serious consequences because Rome is in a strong place. But if Rome is in a weak place and you instead um, center your you know you center your attacks on other Romans, you deprive the society of the ability to marshal its resources to address real problems. And so this is the lesson that I hope we take away, because obviously the world right now in its post-COVID incarnation is suffering significant crises um, in public health, in economic life, in wealth inequality, in um, political instability. Uh, We could respond to this like Marcus did and recreate a society that is more cohesive and stronger um, and better and more functional. Uh, it doesn't look like we're doing this. And that's the lesson that I hope we take away from, you know, looking at Roman history. We are choosing how we're responding. We are choosing to make these conditions worse. Um, There is another way to do this. We could make a different set of choices. And if we did, we would not only more effectively address the crises that we're facing, but we would actually emerge with a stronger society than we started with. Um, And it, it, kind of breaks my heart to see that the united states in particular we are not making that choice um and we should and we could um we just aren't
0: yeah uh, very very well said and i i think definitely something that when you read this book shows through you can take you should take this lesson uh to heart um so before i let you go um i always like to close by asking um what you're working on now, um, you know, this book is done. It's on the shelves. We can know, we can buy it <laughs> and read it. Um, what have you turned your attention to?
1: Uh, so I think the last couple books that I've worked on have been like, hey, here's a moment where Rome's in crisis, or a lot of moments where Rome's in mm-hmm. crisis. Um, and this has been a way a lot of people have done Roman history for a long time, right? I mean, the the way that people, the one thing everybody knows about Rome is that it declined and fell. What we miss is that this is a state, when it fell in 1453, that was 2,200 years old. Um, It's a state that started in Italy with people who were pagans who spoke Latin, and it ends in Constantinople with a group of people who speak Greek and are Christians. And it's the same state. So I want to tell, I'm working on a history that tells the story of Roman successes. Um, What is it that makes this state survive for so long? Why is it so adaptable? Why is it able to roll with so many different disasters and recover from them? Um, And so I'm working on a history of the Roman state from beginning to end, you know, from the eighth century BC or thereabouts through 1453. And it's going to focus on what made this state successful for so long. Um, Because I think that's a story that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but it's also, I think, a story that is really useful for us to think about, uh, because looking at the success of a society is also instructive. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of success in Roman society. Uh, and telling that story together in a way that emphasizes the continuity is, I think, a wonderful way to allow us to think uh, creatively about what society could be, you know, what what makes society strong and whether there are lessons we can take away from Rome that that help us make similar adjustments in our world.
0: Well, no, no pressure, but, uh, when, when you finish, um, we'd love to have you back to talk about it. It sounds fascinating. Um, ambitious, uh, given the, the, the time scope, uh, for sure. Um, so that, that would be great. We generate lots of great discussion. Um, I want to thank Ed definitely for coming on and talking with us today about his book. Um, I I can't recommend this book enough. I I really like it. Uh, So I hope everybody listening goes out and gets it um, and reads it. Um, And I want to give you all the title uh, just one more time. It's called The Eternal Decline and Fall of Rome, The History of a Dangerous Idea. Um, Edward Watts, the author. Um, I also want to thank everybody for listening today. um, And we will see you all next time.
1: Thanks so much, Craig. I had a great time. This was wonderful.